this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure, maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Keaton Hopkins started Valet Gourmet, which was acquired by Takeout Central in 2016. He wrote a blog post about the impact it had on him emotionally, and I think it's definitely a worthwhile read. You can find that at Medium. Uh, com and just search for Keenan Hopkins. You're going to find a lot of really interesting nuggets in this interview, uh, but I love some of the things that Keenan talked around, around the idiot tax. I'll let him describe what that means. He talks about introducing core values into his company, in particular in his hiring process, and I think that was an interesting component. You'll hear him describe how his brand made a huge difference to the growth rate of his company. Some of the tips that he has around selling a business, in particular using a deal attorney, which is not usually the same lawyer who set up your business and incorporated it. Um, And he'll also talk candidly about the downside of a seven-figure exit. Here to tell you the rest of the story is Keenan Hopkins. Keenan Hopkins, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, thanks for having me, John. So I got it. I got your story from Medium. You wrote an amazing article. Um, I can't remember the name of it. Hold on, let me get it. It says, uh, "In 2016, I sold my startup for seven figures." Here's the brutally honest truth that no one talks about when running and selling a business. So, uh, what an awesome title! I'm so glad to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I, re- I really appreciate it. Cool. And thanks for calling that piece amazing. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, if you haven't read it, uh, just Google Keenan's name plus medium and it will pop right up. And it's definitely worth the read for any entrepreneur. Let's get into the story. So you had a company called Valet Gourmet. Give us a sense of what this company did. So uh, we we were in the on-demand food delivery space, uh, which now we have Uber Eats and DoorDash and crazy big VC-funded companies like that. Uh, at the time, when I sold, uh, you know, Uber Eats was just kind of starting and and all that. So you know, we were it was it was a thriving industry, just not as it just wasn't as famous as it is now, if you will. So but we did the same thing. We delivered food from restaurants to people. We did uh, corporate catering events occasional weddings and stuff like that, but it was mostly residential food delivery. So you order just like Uber Eats is now you order online. Um, and then we show up at your doorstep 45 minutes later. Uh, so it's people called it magic at the time, <laughs> which I thought was kind of cool. Um, but it was so it, extraordinarily how, complex behind the scenes. I should say, imagine. You know? Yeah. So yeah. how did, how did the technology work? So you would order on a website or on a mobile device? 
Uh, you can do both. Towards the end, in the beginning, when I opened in 2003, uh, it was pretty much just website. But uh, but yeah, you order on the website or, or, or your, through your app. Uh, the, the people that acquired us have a, a great app. Um, and then, uh, you know, you pick and you pick your stuff and you add your pizza toppings or whatever you want. And, and uh, here in, in, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, um, you, we, we were licensed to sell beer and wine because we were rated Beer City USA for like five years in a row or something. So we were like, oh, we got to get into this game. So, uh, so yeah, we, we carried local beer, microbrewery type stuff and, and wine. And I think, we, I think when I sold, we had uh, about 125 different strategic restaurant partners that we worked with. So it was a lot of offering. And how much of your business was based in Asheville? Was it 100% Asheville or? No. So we had two markets. Uh, we had acquired, uh, I can't remember what year, but uh, it was maybe two years before I sold to so like maybe 2013, 2014. We acquired uh, a company in Knoxville, Tennessee. So we had two different uh, geographic markets there. That's interesting. What was the company you acquired? Uh, at the time, they were called 622 Eats, which was uh, their phone number. Uh, and that's kind of the industry used to do that back in the day. It was, it's so funny now to think back. But yeah, they, they were called uh, 622 Eats. Uh, and yeah, just a, a guy over there in Knoxville ran the business. And, you know, they were they were smaller than us, but they were a great business. And, and we we purchased it. And, and and that acquisition certainly was not without its challenges, which I'm happy to get into if that's a thing that you'd like to discuss. But, yeah, uh, I would definitely uh, love to discuss that. <laughs> Before we go there, though, just tell me the business model. Like, How did you guys make money? So we take a commission from everything we sold from the restaurant, right? Um, so the industry standard commission is about 30%. And, you know, restaurant owners used to balk at that, but I think they kind of understand more now with all the all the players in the business. But essentially, uh, it's, it's the concept of incremental revenue. And so if you have a restaurant kitchen that you own, uh, it's very rare that your kitchen's at 100% unless you have a very successful restaurant. And so all we did was bring extra orders to the restaurant. You know, you've already got, you know, your, your overhead covered and, and so really the only costs that apply to those additional takeout orders are um, food costs and any small packaging costs you might incur, which this is so funny that I'm, I feel like I've, I haven't done this in probably four or five years, like pitched a restaurant. <laughs> so that's like, it's kind of ingrained in me or something. It's just coming right back. That's really funny. So did you guys have sales reps that would co- call on the doors of all these local restaurants saying, hey, you should yeah, take value? We did. Money. We had uh, kind of a main sales rep who... Um, was in charge of building these partnerships uh, and also kind of selling these corporate catering orders. And then we had uh, local market managers, both in Knoxville, Tennessee and here in Asheville uh, that would also handle that kind of stuff. Uh, And I believe the people who acquired me now have a similar structure too, I believe. So how big had you gotten the business by the time you were starting to look at 622 Eats? Like 2013, kind of roughly what was your revenue, how many employees, that kind of stuff? Um. Great question. Uh, I'm going to go with uh, probably $2 million in revenue-ish, give or take 10 20% on that. No, it would have been more. Like It would have been over $2 million actually, now that I think, yeah. So it would have been like between two and two and a half, somewhere in there, I believe. Uh, I don't think we were tremendously profitable, but we were doing okay. Uh, and we probably had, I'm just, this is a total stab in my part, but like maybe 50 or so total people working with us at the time. Got it. Got it. So yeah. I'm assuming quite a few of those would be delivery people that are working. Oh yeah. Yeah. Vast majority delivery people for sure. And how yeah. did that work? So you got 30%, but I'm assuming delivery guys or gals get a cut as well. Yeah. Uh, actually, they, well, they didn't really get a cut. There's so uh, it's kind of a twofold. Uh, 
So, you know, the 30% kind of commission. And I say that as an industry standard. Some people work on less, some people work on more. That's very important to note there. Uh, I don't want to get anybody in trouble in the industry. Uh, so, um, especially now with competitors, maybe that commission's been driven down some. Uh, I'm not really sure. But, uh, and in addition, there's a delivery fee charged. And so the delivery fee passes straight through to the delivery driver. Got it. Um, and then, you know, we live in kind of a gratuity based society for better or worse. Uh, and so they work, they got the delivery fee plus the gratuity. So by the time the the guy orders the In and Out burger gets his burger, it's probably it's probably jacked up by would it be fifty percent by the time they pay the thirty percent plus the delivery charge plus the the commission. I mean, it, it must add a lot to the bill. Uh, no, so so the customer is not paying that thirty percent. By the way, um, oh they're not. Yeah. Oh okay. no, the restaurant is paying that thirty percent. Yeah, uh, sorry for that confusion no, there. That's interesting. Uh, so no. the only thing the customer is paying, and again, man, this varies as much as anything you can imagine, but uh, you know. Generally speaking, in the industry, um, having been on the board of that industry and stuff, um, generally speaking, uh, the markup is very minimal, if any, on a food item. So you're going to pay the same menu price, most likely, plus a delivery fee and then uh, you know, an optional gratuity, I guess, but it's pretty expected. That's super helpful. So I think I understand yeah. the business model. So in 2013, you're, you're generating two, two and a half million dollars in revenue. Tell yeah. me about this six two two eats business. What would what was what was their economics? What did you think it was worth? Oh gosh, I can't remember what they were doing at the time, and I didn't get permission to to say even if I did, but because uh, <laughs> um, I haven't talked to that guy in a long time. But um, but you know they were much smaller than us. I will tell you that. Uh, and um, so I was basically just kind of you know I thought we were hitting kind of our our peak here in Asheville, it's a small town. We have about a hundred thousand people, but we get, I think a million tourists a year or something crazy. Um, and so we were kind of what I thought was our peak and I was totally wrong about that. Interestingly. Um, but I, I started thinking about expanding and in my, in my mind, I was thinking, Oh, we'll go just kind of start from scratch. Uh, but it's such a long process in that industry to start from scratch and build up your customer base. And so like many industries, it's much easier to grow through M and A and uh, I heard, just heard through the grapevine that this guy was for sale and maybe uh, some other people were thinking about buying him. So I reached out, um, you know, I had I'd never really met him, but I, I had talked to him before and I reached out and uh, yeah, and, and, and we basically struck a deal. I remember we went back and forth a few times. I, I sent an LOI and maybe it was too low and then uh, came back with something else and something else. And, um, and then, yeah, so we went back and forth in negotiation and then we finally settled on a price and we each had our attorneys and, they went back and forth for a while and uh, and then we closed. And How are one of these companies valued? Like what were you valuing the business based on? Um, so at that time, it was generally uh, three to five times earnings, just like kind of most businesses. Um, and then w- there was a brief period of time where it went up, which is when I actually <laughs> exited the business. So I kind of got lucky in that regard. Um, and then... Since uh, I don't know that it's stabilized, but it's kind of hit or miss uh, ever since then. I, I don't really pay attention as much anymore. But um, but yeah, so I, I kind of bought on the low side, I think. I don't know. I mean, I think it was fair for the business. Uh, and then I kind of sold on the high side, which I still think was fair for the business, I hope. Uh, and then, you know, since then, I think the M&A activity has been a little bit more sporadic uh, as far as valuations go. Because around the time of Uber Eats, things were getting crazy in the valuation in this space. I had a, I had a friend in this space, so I kind of I was sort of tangentially aware of some of the numbers that uh, people were chasing. Uh, but Uber Eats had certainly jacked up valuations. Oh man, yeah. And uh, what really did it was uh, Grubhub. They um, 
they acquired the two largest industry players. So kudos to them. Uh, they just reached out and acquired the, the big big guys, uh, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and and they did pretty well. Um, you know, and there was there was rumors flying about kind of what they sold for at the time, and I it was huge news in the industry. I mean, the, the ripple effects were insane, and I just my jaw just hit the floor. I was like, I can't believe these guys both sold to Grubhub at the same time. That's just crazy. Uh, you know, I know these guys really well. That's just nuts. I just can't believe it. What were the um, rumors around multiples that Grubhub paid? It was like one times revenue, which is, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how true that was. And I, I, I think it was pretty accurate actually, but, um, but yeah, one X revenue in that industry was, was pretty huge because profit margins are slim. You're looking at like 10% profit margins, best case scenario for most of these guys. Um, and again, this is at the time. So things have changed now. But, you know, if you're looking at a 10% profit margin, most of these businesses are selling for three to five X, you know, best case scenario, you're going to expect about half, you know, 50% revenue valuation. Well, these guys are getting like a hundred percent revenue valuation. And it's like, well, wait a minute, you sell for one times revenue. That's pretty huge. So all of a sudden everybody's interested in selling their business because the valuation went up. So yeah. like, okay, cool. Yeah, that's neat. Did you know any of this stuff when you started? Like, like how did you get into this business? Oh God, no, man. I, in, uh, in prep for this, I kind of wrote this down and I was listening to some of your podcasts and, and just really uh, enjoying them and trying to figure out kind of how I could be, you know, give some takeaways to your listeners. And, and I hope that I'll do a good job here as we progress. But uh, by the way, uh, um, I really enjoyed, uh, gosh, what was it? Um, and then I subsequently read his book, uh, Rand, Rand Fishkin. Oh yeah, Rand Fishkin. Yeah, great yeah. story. Unbelievable. Great, fantastic yeah. story. I feel like I was going to say if there was like a um, like a tender for weird entrepreneurs who've been on your <laughs> podcast, like I would match with him because I think that guy's awesome. That's a business idea. Rand, right there. If you're listening to this, please reach out to me because I think we should be uh, friends. <laughs> a <laughs> but, tender uh, for weird entrepreneurs, perfect. <laughs> yeah, for those of you who haven't listened to that episode, it's with Rand Fishkin, which is a great handle. I think you should be like a rock star, or a DJ, or something like that. Oh yeah, he looks the part. Too, man. Yeah, yeah, and him. great episode. He's written the book uh, Lost and Founder, which is an amazing. book book, a real sobering sort of take on, um, on the venture capital market. So, you know, great, great book. So yeah, we're talking about you now. Plug for that, so. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so in the beginning I was thinking, I, I was preparing for this. I'm like, okay, man, I can't, I still kind of can't believe I sold this business. I had every reason not to succeed. So when I started, I was fresh out of college. Um, I spent, uh, you know, a better part of a year in New Zealand, right out of, out of college and then moved back to the States. And when I was in college for about two years, I had worked as a delivery driver for a similar concept. And that's it. I mean, that's barely any industry experience. I had a business degree, but that only teaches you how to be a good employee of, you know, a, a big company, like a mid, mid-market manager type thing or something. Um, and I had been, you know, treated horribly by several bosses in a row. I worked at a ski resort that was just, had a horrible boss. And I, the guy that ran the delivery service I worked at was, um, you know, I like him, but he's, whew, his, his management style was left a lot to be desired. So I didn't know anything. I was undercapitalized. You know, I spent $10,000 in personal credit card debt to open the business, which is just insane looking back on that. Um, so no management, no real management skills, no idea how to run a business, uh, you know, personal credit card debt and uh, the worst branding ever. So we actually didn't start as Valet Gourmet. We started as Blue Ridge to go, uh, which is, you know, kind of an homage, if you will, to the Blue Ridge Mountains sure. here in North Carolina. But uh, yeah, so terrible name, terrible brand, terrible everything. Didn't know how to do any of this stuff. Um, 
And as I kind of mentioned earlier, it's actually, you know, a very complex business behind the scenes, but it's, uh, it, it, it's deceptively simple on the outside. And so it's like, oh, well, I'll just sign up these restaurants to be part of the system and, and I'll launch and, and this and that. So, you know, so I, I spent about seven years just kind of paying this, this idiot tax. And then, um, <laughs> the I mean, idiot just, tax. yeah, wow. just, I mean, being a horrible boss and a horrible person and just, um, you know, not knowing what I was doing and, and, you know, regretful things and, and whatever. Uh, and now I'm much more empathetic, uh, than I've ever been. But, um, so yeah, seven years of that and then made this awesome transformation. So it was about 2009, we started working on the rebrand process, uh, which is, um, you know, we worked with a local branding firm. We went through all this naming and stuff. And then I learned the power of a, of a true proper brand. And we switched to Valley Gourmet. We finally had a great logo and a brand and colors and fonts and all that jazz. And, uh, and then at the same time, uh, I had discovered Zappos Insights, which was, you know, Tony Shea had started with Zappos to uh, teach other companies how to implement uh, a company culture, core values, all that. And so I think we were one of the first companies to, to embrace that and flew out to Vegas, did a boot camp, uh, some other stuff and, and really embraced the company culture spirit. I had a great kind of second in charge person at the time that was really creative and helped me launch that. And uh so yeah, we launched these core values, retooled our hiring process, did a bunch of stuff, made sure people were aligned with uh, the values and and the mission and the vision and all that, and uh, and yeah, really turned it around. And I, it, it was crazy that the combination of the two was just like magic. I mean, it took us so long to get to like a million dollars in revenue, and then it's like the next million came really fast, uh, and the next one after that came really fast, and then you know. Um, I don't know. It just, all that stuff really helps. And especially the hiring, like I got really, really good at hiring. We had just an incredible workforce. We had the lowest delivery driver turnover in the entire industry, which in that industry is a huge, gigantic glaring problem. I mean, we would go to these industry conferences and they would spend full days uh, talking about delivery driver turnover. And I would go there and speak uh, on, on, on this topic was, I loved this topic because we were, we had the lowest turnover and I would just tell people what we did, how we did it. And just see their reactions is like, Oh, I don't know how I can implement that in my own business. And then, uh, some of them, I would help implement that in their businesses. And it was just really rewarding. To kind so, of ha- so what did you look for in drivers? What were, what was the secret sauce? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, interestingly, we went back and forth many times over, but what we ultimately decided is we just wanted to look for good people, people who are really good and shared our core values. And so, you know, during the recession, we had a lot of people who were like real estate agents. And I remember there was a guy who was like a writing professional, like creative writing, maybe copywriter uh, and some other people like that who weren't getting enough work all of a sudden and they needed something to supplement their income. And so we were, we were getting these interviews from people like that. And I realized like, wait a minute, these people that are coming in, it doesn't cost us much to onboard them. It's pretty easy. Um, you know, so even if we only have them for three weeks, which we didn't, we had them a lot longer than that generally, but, uh, you know, even if we did only have them for three weeks, we had a fantastic individual for three weeks to, uh, promote our service. And so once we started taking that approach and, um, you know, our interview process was very much based around our core values. We did uh, group interviews. I mean, you know, generally in the industry, it's like, Oh, do you have a pulse or can you use this app? Okay, come on in. You know? Um, but but for us, we did the first round of interview was a group based interview. Then we did two different rounds of individual interviews, you know, to bring people in. So we kind of inadvertently created this club of amazing people that all shared values. And to be frank, I, like I still keep in touch with a lot of them today and consider them friends. And I just love 
like I'll go out and have a beer with some of them. And <laughs> it's been, you know, it's great. That's awesome. Uh, Tell me about the, the core values themselves. What were the values? Oh man, put me on the spot with that one. It's been a while. <laughs> um, how about I tell you the, my, the favorite two? Sure. Uh, Sounds and good. And the rest of them can kind of live in infamy there. Um, so my favorite, uh, oh gosh, let's see. My favorite was number one, which was, let me see if I can phrase this correctly. Um, exceed expectations through service. And the reason it was my favorite was because it didn't say customer service. It just said service. And so we were looking for people who were kind to everyone, you know, the cashier at the grocery store or the lady at the airline counter or whatever, you know, kill them with kindness people. So that's who we were looking for. Uh, I just loved that so much. It was my favorite. Uh, and then everybody else's favorite, which we put on a t-shirt and, uh, and was great. And I think I've still got, uh, was resist drama. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, it was a great one. So we, uh, you know, it didn't say no drama, it just said resist drama. And then, you know, we would go through periods where that wasn't necessarily happening. And so I had to kind of define different types of drama. <laughs> like, okay. You can't, uh, you know, gossiping is really not cool, but like constructive criticism is definitely cool. So let's, you know, let's break this down in, in <laughs> different categories. Um, so, you know, there was that, uh, and uh, all kinds of, other, Oh, there was one called no cheap excuses. And that was number six. So we'd be around the office and be like, let's do this or that. And then somebody would say, Oh no, we can't because blah, blah. And it was very common to yell out, number six, number six, you know, and that just meant, Hey, no cheap excuses. Like quit, quit giving us these excuses. Like just make it happen. Got it. Um, Got it. That's super helpful. (laughs) Tell me about the impact of rebranding to Valet Gourmet. You mentioned it had a big impact. Um, Why, why did it impact you guys so positively? Man, it it was crazy. I I think that's a great question. And I, I really don't, I don't know other than the fact that good brands are amazing in general and they, they just get people excited. Uh, you know, if you think of your favorite brands, whatever they may be, you know, like, like Tesla, right. is a great example of, of one that gets people just excited. They see the logo and they're excited. Um, and I think we went from this no nothing garbage brand to this cool logo and this cool name that rhymes and, um, you know, and it just got people excited and it's a local business, but you know, we, the drivers that we worked with uh, would put these, you know, car top or roof signs on top of their cars. And so if you drive around a little small city, you would see them everywhere. Um, and so all of a sudden there's this cool hip brand with like these cool logo and it's, you know, this, a plate that has wings and you know, this, these colors, these bright, vibrant colors say, Hey, here we are. Um, and then all of a sudden at the same time, you know, you go on our website and there's just these 10 core values, like front and center. It's like, here's who we are. Uh, you know, or you get our marketing material. There's, there's core values everywhere. This is like, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. Here's our colors. It's all bright and cool and vibrant. And I think it just got people excited and it got me excited. You must have been like the mayor of Asheville. Here you are like employing (laughs) all the unemployed real estate brokers and copywriters. You've got these like awesome vans going all over a hundred thousand person town, which is a relatively small town. Right. And you're delivering beer and food. Like <laughs> that's pretty funny, man. Actually, you're like the mayor. Uh, yeah. I'm sure. I keep joking with my wife that I want to run for mayor of Asheville. I think you that should. would never happen. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so, take us up to 2016 at when you sold the company. What was the sort of size of the company at that time? Uh, I'd love to know sort of what triggered your decision to sell. Um, okay, this is good. Yeah, uh, I've, this is a good story, actually. Um, so I, I hope your listeners enjoy this one. Um, 
so I think, you know, I hope we get more into kind of, you know, the why it's great to sell to an industry peer um, because it's easy. But I went back and I dug through my text messages um, because my negotiation started with a text message to an industry friend. <laughs> uh, interestingly, I was driving through uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, which is the capital of North Carolina, where he operates, um, still operates to this day. And, uh, and I sent him a text and I actually took a screenshot of this text and sent it to him before we started this podcast because I thought it was so awesome. But it says, would you buy Valley Gourmet for 50% next 12 months estimated revenue? The terms of the deal could be worked out. And then I said, random question I know, I've been dealing with so much stress recently, I need to figure out how to relax. And he said, is that a trick question, smiley face? Yes, of course. I'm honestly honored that you think enough of us to propose that. Let's talk soon. So there you go. That was the start of the negotiation process. Wow. And that was May of 2015. Read the text one more time. 50% okay. of yeah. next... Is 0.5. So basically, would you buy Valley Gourmet for half next 12 months estimated revenue. So we were uh, like, one of the things I was proud of is I was really good at forecasting, super good at forecasting in that industry. And so I was, you know, forecasting man expenses and uh, revenue down really well. And so, you know, I looked at it and said, oh, we're gonna do X amount. I can't remember now, but I think it was close to 4 million, let's say. And so I sent him that text, said, hey, um, I, I'm stressed out. I wanna get out of this thing. Um, do you would ask kind of what the trigger was to sell mm-hmm. the business? Well, uh, so here's, here's, here's what I was dealing with at the time. Driver in Knoxville, which is like two hours drive away from me, um, driver in Knoxville gets into an accident with a pedestrian. Pedestrian, from what I understand, has a broken leg as a result of this uh, accident and has to go to the emergency room. Uh, almost simultaneously here in Asheville and I'm being intentionally vague here cause I, I don't even know how these, how these things worked out. Um, and so uh, here in Asheville, uh, a driver and another person got into an accident and I'll leave, uh, I'll leave it vague at that, but it was a very stressful accident. Uh, and then the, the, the creme de la creme, if you will, uh, a driver got stabbed outside of our office on a Friday night. And that was the worst. Uh, he's a friend of mine. He's totally fine. But he got stabbed with a rusty screwdriver outside of our office, which is insane. Um, and I remember kind of funny, the, the day before that happened, uh, th- it was a Thursday. We were having a staff meeting. I said, look, guys, I really like you guys, but I've been in this business a long time. And I'm, I'm just really sick of getting these 10 p.m. phone calls asking me mundane stuff that can be figured out the next day. So check it out. I'm happy if you need to call me, like, it's totally fine. I I will, I will help you, but I really like to relax in the evenings and, you know, after my day is over and you're still working, but I'm not. And, you know, I need my downtime. So if you could, please don't call me unless there's like an actual emergency. So this is on Thursday. So Friday night I'm watching television or something. I can't even remember. And my phone rings and I look and it's the office and I'm like, Oh my God, we just had this conversation yesterday. What am I telling you guys? So I pick it up and it's like, yeah, he's been stabbed and he's going to, you know, going to the emergency room and I'm like, Holy cow, that's crazy. So, wow. uh, Called the uh, market manager, booked it to the ER and he was, he was totally fine. And like I said, I see see him pretty regularly actually, but um, uh, yeah, he was totally fine. But the stress the following weekend, because uh, he had been stabbed. The area of town where our office was in is this kind of gentrified, uh, yeah, no, you know how it goes with gentrification, right? Like the type of people who live in those neighborhoods. So um, it was kind of, this, yeah, a little gentrified neighborhood. And they have a Facebook group 
with kind of a crime watch Facebook group, if you will. Well, this thing is blowing up off the rails. And, you know, this guy got stabbed. It's huge news in, 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 in the neighborhood and, and whatever. And this is, again, on top of these accidents that have just happened. And I'm like, my God, so that's happening. Every single driver is all of a sudden like, oh, my God, am I going to get stabbed? I'm carrying around cash. This is crazy. Like, what am I doing? And then our office staff is like, oh, my God, the driver got stabbed outside of the office. You know, we have to take care of this. Like, I'm, I'm terrified now and blah, blah, blah. And so all of a sudden, everyone in the entire company is just looking at me. <laughs> and so that's when it's like, oh, my gosh, this is this is crazy. This is lonely. You know, this is when it starts to get real lonely at the top right now because everybody's looking at you and your reaction. And probably when I think back to kind of lessons learned and things that I could have done better, that is probably the top of it because there was so much pressure and so much stress on me. I didn't know what to do. And I kind of lost it a little bit. I'm just like, oh, my God, I have no idea. I was just like pulling my hair out and just so stressed and and not thinking clearly and, and just saying things that I didn't mean. And, and it just it was really tough, period. But then to my credit, what I did, um, because the neighborhood was so uh, terrified by this incident that, that happened at the time, I uh, organized a community meeting at our office. I brought in pizzas, um, a bunch of pizzas. I invited anybody in the neighborhood or anybody literally who wanted to come to this meeting in the entire community could come, even their office was fairly small. Um, we had a lot of people show up. I mean, we were packed in there um, and we were eating pizza. Um, I got in touch with the police and they sent out kind of a resource officer, like a, like a Barney Fife type guy that came in. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he, he did talk like, uh, like Barney Fife. Uh, but yeah, it came out and uh, yeah, moderated this meeting between kind of a police officer and concerned community citizens. And, uh, you know, it was in the newspaper. And, and, and to be clear, Keenan, were they blaming Valet Gourmet for this incident? Oh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. But this, this wasn't, so this, it's just these random acts of violence that happen in every city. And what's mostly, you know, what's, what's really scary is when it happens in your neighborhood that you think is safe. And so that's what was happening. You know, previously, I think a few years before that, a lady was walking home after, after some, some beers uh, through the same neighborhood and, and somebody came up behind her and hit her with a baseball bat. It was really sad and, and terrible. And she survived and, and I think she's recovered. But, uh, you know, so it was kind of a continuation on that. Like people are already like, okay, well, every now and then this, these random acts happen and it's scary and, and our neighborhood we think is safe, but, you know, so nobody's blaming us at all, but they're scared. Everybody's scared. They like, have kids and, and everything. And, and what and, was your like exposure from an insurance perspective to your drivers? Like, did you have some sort of protection that the drivers both the one who got stabbed as well as the two that got in the accidents. Like how were you guys as a company protected or, or, or not vulnerable to, to these incidents? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because now I can give a shout out to one of my, one of my very best friends who helped me through that time. Uh, Aaron Hageman. Uh, I'm going to have to uh, tell him about this for sure. He runs a fantastic company called DDI delivery drivers, Inc. And, uh, and they have really exploded recently. I know they're working with like Walmart to do grocery delivery and stuff now. Um, but he's based out of Orange County, California. Um, and anyway, so, so, so they manage driver programs for restaurant delivery companies like, like Valley Gourmet. And so because they had that, they had the insurance in place, they had all that. So, um, generally speaking, you know, if, if that insurance or the driver's personal kind of insurance didn't cover it, then we had an umbrella policy behind the scenes. Um, and, to be frank, I don't remember exactly what happened there, but I think that the kind of injury supplemental, whatever insurance the delivery drivers had were all covered, all that stuff. So we, we didn't have to worry too much about it. Got it. So let's get back into the deal. So you're yeah. obviously stressed beyond imagination. You text your yeah. industry 
peer and friend. And his response is, yeah, let's, let's yeah, talk. He's like, yeah, thanks. I'm honored. <laughs> like, cool, man. All right. Where does it go from there? Um, so from there, uh, oh man, I'm just, it, it's, it's a little fuzzy cause it's been a few years, but, um, I remember we met, we met in, uh, down in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where his base of operations is. And then, uh, he came up here to Asheville and we met some more. He brought his business partner along. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of negotiation. It was, Hey, would you be interested in this 0.5? And then we came up with the price, the, uh, the two, it was a $2 million valuation is what we ended up with. Uh, I ended up with, um, about a quarter of that in, in stock that I still have. And then, um, another quarter of that was under a buyout kind of program, which I'm still under. Uh, and then, you know, the, the remaining 50% was, was paid, uh, in the, in the beginning few months. Um, and so I think honestly, the, we didn't really have to negotiate the purchase price cause we were both somewhat satisfied with it. Um, and we really negotiated the terms more than anything. And it, because we were already friends, there wasn't even really negotiation. It was just a chat. So and to, it be, was cl- awesome. to be clear that the 4 million was projected next 12 months revenue. Is that yes, correct? Okay. That's correct. So because he, I think trailing 12 months was around 3.4 or 3.5 or something. How did you get him comfortable, the takeout control guys comfortable on your accuracy with reporting? Because they had to, it, it seems like, be pretty confident that your 4 million projection was was solid. Yeah, you know, they they um, weren't new to the M&A game at all. They had had uh, acquired some other businesses in the industry too. So they were they were ready to go. Uh, but I think what's important is they were, I pro- I, you know, I think they were around the same size as us, maybe a little larger. So they were almost doubling their revenue with this acquisition. And so it was a big opportunity for them, very strategic opportunity for them. So I think when they did their due diligence, um, it became clear, hey, these guys are growing pretty substantially year over year. And there's no reason for us to believe that they're not going to grow, you know, another 20% this year or something. And so it was pretty, that was pretty easy, honestly. I just looked at our track record. Got it. Okay. And in terms of the stock, you're, you're getting stock in takeout central. Yeah, that's correct. What are your liquidity options on that? Like, could you sell it or are you waiting for them to sell their company? Like what, how, how do you get that? How do you monetize that to, that investment? Um, I, I don't actually, I, I don't actually know. Um, I, I just, I just hold on to it for now. If they sell one day, then, then that's great. Uh, if they don't, I think, you know, I, there hasn't been a ton of, uh, kind of, um, profit distributions or anything like that. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to kind of hang on to it. That was part of the deal, um, that I, that I made. And so it's not a big deal. I, you know, I, at the time I, I, I was thinking slash hoping that maybe they would sell in a few years. Uh, but since then the market's cooled a little bit, it's a different environment. And so I'm not entirely sure what their plans are. Um, but yeah, I just, for now, I'm just hanging on to it and it's just an asset that I have. And you mentioned there was a quarter of it in a buyback program or buyout program. What, what does that mean? Uh, I bet, essentially I had to wait, uh, gosh, what did I wait? Three, two, two years, no, two, two and a half years. Um, and then I'm getting paid uh, monthly or for the next like five years, I think. Got it. And and if if they were to, not suggesting this would happen, but just so I sure. understand the legal sort of construct here, if they were to default on those payments, what would your recourse be? 
Um, I, I would have to look at the agreement, but I believe it's secured by uh, additional equity in the business. So um, I, I, if they default, I could probably jump back into the business if I wanted to and, and you know, run it. Um, I'm guessing. I don't, I don't actually know that. Um, I, Had plus, it, I'm so far removed now, it would be really weird. Um, but yeah, everything's great. So I'm, I'm trying not to think about that scenario, to be honest. Have you started to receive your, your payments on that buyout program? Yeah, I think they started like last August or something like that. So, yeah, we actually did. Uh, actually, this might be good for your listeners, um, and I hope they don't mind me telling this. Uh, but we actually did do a, a small renegotiation that was contingent on them uh, getting additional funding, uh, additional capital raise, um, which they haven't got yet, and I think is still in progress. But if they do get this capital raise that they're looking for, uh, then I will actually be completely bought out of the business. Um, and I came back and renegotiated with them. I mean, they, they wanted to, but it was, it was kind of their, they reached out to me and said, Hey, would you, you know, we're looking to kind of restructure. Would you be interested in a full buyout? And I said, yes. And, and then, uh, yeah, we, so we, we renegotiated that. So if they do this capital raise, then I'll, I will be out completely. Um, but I'm not expecting that to happen. I'm just kind of, uh, cautiously optimistic, I guess. If you will. It sounds like a, a really friendly, you know, kind of takeover between friends. If, if there's, if there's one thing you might do differently, if you could kind of press rewind and do it all again, what might you do differently? Sure. Yeah. Let me look at my, uh, I, t- I took some notes on this one because I figured this was going to come up. <laughs> uh, so a, I would have hired a much better attorney and you know, I've had a few friends sell their businesses recently and I've seen what they've dealt with, uh, with their businesses and, um, really kind of seen it from, from the outside looking in and, but, but, you know, with some, some details, we're kind of in, in these entrepreneur groups together. And, um, and so with their attorneys, they paid a lot more money, their attorneys, but their deals were a lot more kind of solid. So you're asking me these questions, like, are you able to sell your equity or what happens in this scenario? Well, I actually don't know. And I don't know that it's spelled out in there or not. And so, um, you know, you're, you live in a small city, you get small city attorneys sometimes, and that's kind of what happened to me. So, I think, uh, you know, whoever's listening to this and thinking about selling their business, I would encourage them very much so to make sure they get an attorney who's very familiar with M&A stuff for sure. Um, mine was not, and I'm not sure she had done many deals uh, like that. Uh, secondly, I would love to, um, you know, I would assume they're going to listen to this at some point, um, but, you know, if, if I could do this over again, I would love to still be involved in the business as a board member. Uh, absolutely love to be involved in that business. I think that I have some um, strengths uh, that I could bring to the table uh, with with Takeout Central that, that would be helpful, I guess. Maybe I mean they're they're very smart people, so I don't, I don't, this is not a dig at them by any means. But uh, you know, I, I think that it would be really cool to stay involved and also to, uh, kind of more selfishly protect my equity just a little bit better because right now I'm just I, there's no protection in place. Um, and so you ask me like, what happens if they default or whatever? I mean, my only. I'm entitled to see financials if I want, but you know, I have to request them and I don't really get around to that very often because they're just doing their thing and I don't want to get in their way. So, um, you know, I just kind of, they just do their thing and, and that's it. And they, they pay and everything's cool. Um, and so, but I, w- I would love to be more involved. I, I really would. And, you know, could I reach out to them and see if there's an opportunity? Yes, absolutely. But you know, it seems at this point it's kind of too far gone to do that. And then, um, you know, kind of lastly, looking back, or maybe this is something else we're going to get into in a minute. I'm not sure, but I didn't know what it was like to kind of, to, to kind of have this all of a sudden have this pile of money with no purpose in life. And that was very, very, very challenging to deal with. And I've since learned that it is a very challenging thing for a lot of people, not just me. 
Well, let's get into that now because that was the basis of the Medium article. Um, and I was I was just fascinated by some of the things like truth number two, for example, money changed me for the worse. Um, I, you know, one quote that I'll just read, and, and these are your words. I'd love you to just kind of react to them. Uh, the friends that I've made in the last few years do not understand, and that's 100% my fault. They see a spoiled, tone-deaf asshole who they can't identify with. Success is intimidating to others. When you roll up in someone's house in a Tesla, how can they help but assume <laughs> that you're just a judgmental asshole? That's pretty strong language. Right. And it was true. I mean, <laughs> funny side note, my parents, very Southern U.S. Uh, parents, said, did you have to use that language? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. When they saw that. Yeah, I put it on Facebook. Uh, anyway, so, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's interesting. So here's, here's kind of looking back on it the way that I see what happened. And I've since adjusted course and, and I'm not as bad as I used to be. I think about this kind of stuff, but I was surrounded, you know, I'm in this, like I'm in the EO network, which you're probably familiar with. And I'm sure some of your uh, listeners are in and, and guests. Yeah, uh, EO stands for entrepreneurial organization. Yep. Definitely. Yeah, Fantastic organization. Uh, it's great. I mean, I, I was even in a, a, a higher up thing called uh, EMP through EO, which is the entrepreneur master's program up in Boston. And uh, so I knew a lot of people, I had traveled all over the world. And so I'm hanging out with these entrepreneurs and I'm making friends with these, these guys and gals that are very successful and they're all driving Maseratis and, and whatever. And, and they're staying at nice hotels and I was too. And it, it just became a part of life and you don't think about it. You don't think about the guy who is having trouble paying his bills or that other stuff you, because you're, you kind of get into this like myopic worldview a little bit, uh, you know, sometimes and, and it's all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I can buy these, this nice pair of jeans or I can, you know, I think in the article I'd said, you know, these countertops, these concrete countertops are expensive, but like, that's not a problem for me. Or, you know, I can, I can go off to wherever in the world I want to go and stay at nice hotels. And, and that's not a problem. And you don't really think about it. I mean, you, you know, you're grateful. You're like, yeah, this is great, but you don't think, Oh, Hey, this is cool. Like I'm driving a nice car. This guy's driving a nice car. We're hanging out. We've been successful as entrepreneurs. We've got money. And so then what happens is, you know, in my case anyway, and I think in a lot of, I've, I've heard from other people all the time, by the way, with this medium, I think about taking it down, but I get, I get, uh, unsolicited messages, just one or two a week, easy still like two years later, um, with people going through this exact same scenario. But it's just so hard to relate after you've been through that and you are going through that. Um, you know, somebody, you know, you'll just be talking about something that's totally normal to you. Um, whatever it may be, something nice. And you're talking about that to somebody who has trouble paying their bills or, or maybe is like struggling to make ends meet. And that's why, why you sound like a tone deaf asshole. Um, and it's, it's tough. And I didn't realize it at the time. And now I'm, I'm a totally different person. I've kind of come full circle on this, but, but at the time it was tough. I was playing in this, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a violinist. Um, and so I jumped into playing music full time and I'm playing in this band and musicians by nature, just kind of nomadic, like don't really try to make a ton of money and, you know, uh, just kind of par for the course there. So I'm hanging out with all these musicians and it's great and I love it and having a blast. And I'm just talking about, whatever, I might text a picture to somebody of my Tesla beside my buddy's Maserati or something. And I don't think anything of it, but yet it really upset them. And then a month later they get mad, you know, they come, they're mad at me about something else and they'll bring that up. And, and that literally happened. And that was kind of what caused me to write this whole blog post. Um, 
which actually had the adverse reaction to to to, to some of my friends at the time. Well, they read it and thought it was specifically about them, uh, and so it made matters even worse. <laughs> and and that sucks. And I, I you know kind of still miss some of those cats, but um, you know, uh, so it, in reality, it wasn't about them. It was about life after exit, and all of a sudden, like, hey, holy crap! Like, I've been successful. I came from nothing. Like, I you know, I mean, I was growing up in Eastern North Carolina where it's, you know, it'll be a hundred degrees, uh, with a hundred percent humidity. And like my parents couldn't afford to have air conditioning. I mean, I didn't grow up with money. I didn't, you know, and all of a sudden I have this and I'm not thinking, you know, cause it's been a few years now and, and I'm not thinking much of it. And, you know, so I'm blabbing, blabbing my mouth to like these people who don't have all this stuff, you know, and some of them are comfortable. I'm not saying this is like, you know, super far-fetched, but you know, so, you know, it just, I wasn't able to relate. And it was very challenging, like very challenging um, for a long time. Uh, and like so, I just so said, they they weren't able to relate to you. It sounds like like you had changed, and now what you had and things that you talked about, and they didn't relate. Yeah. What about the other way? Did did you struggle to relate to them in the same way? I you know I don't think so because I've always kind of been happy at the way that I can relate with people. I, I, I just, I enjoy talking to people. I like, I still to this day, like my wife thinks I'm crazy. I'll just go off to these, whatever, where I don't know anybody and I'll just talk to people and get to know people. And I love it. It's just something I do. And I, and I think it's great. It doesn't matter where I am in the whole world. I'll, I'll just like bring up conversations, even if it's kind of taboo to do so. Um, but you know, so I think for me, I, I like relating to people and I, and I really enjoy pleasing people and, and, uh, so I, I don't feel like I had that necessarily, um, but I do feel like the other way around was true. So what advice would you have for a fellow EO forum mate? You're in the forum. He's got the offer in front of me. It's a seven figure offer. It's going to change you know, his financial life. What advice would you share with that fellow forum mate on this topic? I would say, well, yeah, it's a tough one. I, you know, I would just say there's no reason to hide anything, but there's all the reason in the world to be cautious about your words. <laughs> I think, I think you never know who you're talking to. You never know who you're dealing with. I mean, I've met at these EO events, I've met people who are billionaires and, and are extremely humble and you would never know. And, and, you know, and I've met people who have sold their businesses for less than I sold mine and are extremely arrogant. And, you know, and so it just goes kind of goes either way. But I would say you never know who you're talking to. Right. So, you know, everybody's different, but relating to people post exit is challenging. I would say very challenging, the most challenging thing. And I'm, and I'm having trouble like putting into words how I came out of that and went full circle. But I think what I did is just, I grew a lot more empathy and appreciation for what I have and empathy for other people in general. Um, and so, you know, I just did one of these kind of strengths finder assessments and empathy was my number one strength and whether that's actually a strength or not, I'd, I'd still go back and forth. But, um, you know, I think being empathetic to other people is very, very important, very important. I think in business and all around in general, I, that's like the biggest thing I've learned in the past few years for sure. Um, so, yeah, you know, just being nice and, uh, try to put yourself in their shoes a little more, I think. 
Well, it's good. It's good yeah. wisdom for for all of us for sure. Keenan, I really appreciate you spelling, spending the time with me today. I am grateful for you writing the the blog post again. You can find that at Medium. Just um, just Google Medium, Medium and uh, Keenan Hopkins. Uh, where do where can people find out more about what you're up to these days? If if they wanted to reach out and sort of say hi, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I know that you, you had reached out to me on LinkedIn and, uh, at the time I had, I didn't have my notifications set up, so I, I missed it and it took like a month to get back to you. But now I've got notifications set up. So feel free to reach out to me at LinkedIn or, uh, Kenan Hopkins at gmail.com. It's K E N A N last name Hopkins at gmail.com. And, um, I do have some really cool stuff in the pipeline actually, uh, coming up and I don't know if we're out of time or not, but, uh, if, if we are, that's cool. But if not, I could hit on that briefly. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so this is uh, this is great for for people who have exited or who are planning an exit. Uh, maybe um, one of the things that I had mentioned kind of earlier to John was that uh, it's really hard to go from you know when you're running a business to you're running at like 200 miles an hour all the time, and then to just all of a sudden be at zero. In my case, I did I didn't work in the business after I sold it, uh, and you know if you do that, it might be slightly different. But essentially, uh, it's very tough, and so. I've recently become uh, interested and aware of this kind of concept of uh, founder opportunity fit, which, so I've been, you know, I've been looking at these businesses for sale for, for over two years now, and I haven't found anything. I'm looking all over the United States, um, just in case something ha- falls in my lap. I've seen friends go out and buy these random businesses that like, and it's like, man, you know, you bought this kind of yoga business and it's like, do you even do yoga? No. Okay. Well, I like, Oh, I just thought it would be cool to get into the yoga business. Well, okay, cool. That's like, that's good. But I mean, that's random, you know? So for me, I had looked at all these different kind of industries and, you know, I'd look at things from like HVAC and, uh, uh, excavation type businesses. I've done due diligence on several and, uh, I'm like, you know, so anyway, I came across this kind of more systematic way to do founder opportunity fit. And so if you, if you Google that, there are a lot of articles about founder opportunity fit. And to be honest, I think it's really fascinating. And some people believe that that is, uh, going to be kind of the next wave of, you know, these entrepreneurs that are growing businesses and these serial entrepreneurs, the, the systematic approach to finding a new opportunity uh, is going to be kind of the next big thing. Um, and we'll see what happens, but I'm using that now. And, uh, I just got into, I can tell you about this and I'm really excited. I just got accepted into this program called 10, 10, 10, uh, and it's in Denver and they take 10 CEOs from uh, all over the place, all over the, the country. And they put you together for 10 days and they have 10, uh, what they call wicked problems that are very complex, uh, scary, societal based problems. Uh, this one's around healthcare. And so I'll be going to that, uh, I think a week from today, they'll be announcing, um, I'll be there and they're doing the kind of what they call the big reveal, uh, where they announce all the CEOs and the issues and everything. So, uh, I hope something comes out of that and that will be my next opportunity, but, uh, that remains to be seen. But I am, that's, that's kind of where I found out those founder opportunity fit. So pretty cool stuff. 10, 10, 10 Denver and founder opportunity fit. Yeah. Really Very cool. Sp- like, yeah. Eye opening stuff there. So yeah. If anybody's in this position, check it out for sure. I really appreciate you spending the time with us, Keaton. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. 
John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.